It's a pleasure to be here tonight and to spend a little bit of time with you to talk about some things that I learned in my uh, lengthy FBI career. I did 30 years. My, my parents gave me to the FBI as a young person, and, uh, and I got raised from there. And I've been retired for a while, but yeah, as he said, that, that is, this is the hardback of my book, and that's the paperback. And I only put it up there for so, totally self-serving reasons, so you buy it. <laughs> um, they, they make lovely Christmas gifts, although it's early. You know, you can get them by the dozen. Anyway, um, I spent, uh, of my 30 years in the FBI, I spent 23 as a hostage negotiator, and I was also working terrorist matters, overseas hijackings, and so forth. And um, negotiation was initially a part-time function for me, and then I became uh, a full-time uh, negotiator and, and later the chief negotiator for all the FBI, for, which I was for the last 23 years of my career in that capacity. So I worked a lot of prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, bank robberies, kidnappings, um, you know, just normal stuff. Um, and uh, from that, I learned a lot about human engagement and human interaction and communications. And there's a lot of great business negotiation courses you can take, and probably you've had, you've read the books. You, if you go on Amazon, you'll see there's dozens and dozens of books about business negotiations and this win-win, win-lose, um, all kinds of interesting things, how to get to yes. That's all good stuff. My approach is a little more simplistic. I view the fact that relationship building is the single most important thing you can do. If you can build a relationship with a bank robber who's already killed a bank security guard and he's holding hostages, and if you can get him to put his gun down and surrender, you're doing something right because that person's having the worst day of their life. And it's likely to get worse before it gets better. So what are the key learning attributes that are the key learning tools, findings that, that, that come from that? And what I've learned is it's all about relationship building. Every one of you in here has a job that requires relationships. Relationship with your coworkers, relationship with your bosses, your vendors, your clients, relationship with your family, your neighbors. We as humans survive as social animals. So it's in our basic interest to cooperate, but a lot of times it doesn't quite go the way we want. But you can steer it that way if you really pay attention to how you engage with people. Because people want to work with people that they like. So I'm going to talk about the key components I've learned in negotiations. And as I do so, I'll try to relate some of it to business. But I want you to think about how would, how would you use this skill set? You may use it already in your, in your business world. Let me get my little clicker here. Oh, by the way, the reason for uh, the title of my book, when I, when I became a negotiator, it was a brand new thing in law enforcement. And I went back and I looked at my note-taking guide, and the first three words I wrote down from an instructor were stall for time. And it's basically, if you do nothing else, slow it down and buy time. It helps to lower emotional levels and keep things in a, on, a, on a more positive plane. And, uh, you know, we used to joke a lot of times negotiators sometimes would seemingly move, move slow, and a, a boss would say, why is it taking so long? Look, we're not getting anywhere getting this guy to surrender. It's almost like you people aren't doing anything. Well, we're engaged in dynamic inactivity. And they go, oh, okay. For a minute there, <laughs> for a minute there, I didn't think you had a strategy. You know, sometimes just buying time, you think about it in your own personal interactions where you had an argument with your significant other, your kids, a coworker, whatever. Sometimes the best time to not say something is right then when you're angry, you've been hurt, you don't really appreciate what was said, and your first inclination is to strike back. But that may not be the wisest thing. Let things slow down and calm down, and I'll talk more about that. All right, all the cases I'm going to talk to you about tonight are examples or cases I worked on, either on the scene or, or supported telephonically. When I was at the FBI Academy, a lot of times the police department would handle a really difficult situation. They'd call back. And we usually didn't get the calls where they would say, you know, thanks for the training. Everything's going great. Just wanted you to know. It's usually like, this one's gone to hell, and it's very dangerous, and we don't know what to do. You got any good ideas? So we would get those calls on a weekly basis. Self-control. If you can't control your own emotions, how can you influence someone else? You heard the old saying, it takes two to tango, two to argue. If another person's really angry at you and you don't respond in kind, it has a tendency to bring their emotional level down. And in fact, I don't have a slide on it, but if you can imagine a childhood teeter-totter, 
which tells you everything about human uh, interaction. On that teeter-totter, when emotions are high, rational thinking and rational behavior are low. I defy anybody to say that's false. So your job, by staying in control and approaching the problem in a calm way, is to lower emotion. And what happens when the emotion gets lowered? Rational thinking and behavior comes up. If you think about that as a guide, it tells you a lot about human interaction. And I always love the Rudyard Kipling quote, you know, if you can keep your head about you when all else are losing theirs and blaming you. You know, those are the kind of people that really function well in a critical situation, a time-sensitive project, a pressure cooker activity, a conflict of any kind. You know, when I was working terrorism matters back in the 80s, uh, I was in charge of investigating the TW-847 kidnap, uh, uh, skyjacking in, in Beirut. And I interviewed the Americans on the plane. There was about 150 Americans. And the plane went from Athens to Beirut to Algiers to Beirut to Algiers and back to Beirut. So it was a complex kidnapping. And people were released at various times. Well, there would be two people sitting next to each other. If I may use you, I'd say, John, do you remember the second landing in Beirut, Beirut what happened? And John would say, we landed in Beirut? And then I'd ask the next gentleman, I forgot it. Uh, Jeremy. Jeremy, I'd ask Jeremy, you remember the second landing in Beirut? Yeah, I was in row 22, seat 22C. Then they moved me to 19B. I sat next to so-and-so and such-and-such, -and, -such, and the hijackers did this, and we were on the ground for this amount of time. Incredible detail, incredible memorization. Why? Because he had kept his emotions in check and was able to go into a survival mode. What is the information that I need to gather in order to survive and pay attention? It's in my own self-interest versus somebody being so panicked and so overcome with emotion. You know, if we're walking down the street tonight and there's a terrible car accident and there's a victim on the road whose legs have been severed, how any of us, including me, would react to that will be significantly different from the trauma surgeon who just got off shift, right? We're all going, oh my God, this is the most terrific thing I've ever seen, what do we do? We all run around. The trauma surgeon goes right to work. It's not that the trauma surgeon doesn't feel the emotion, they suppress it, they put it aside and focus on what has to be done. In Stevens High School, this young man, there was a book that uh, Stephen King, the author, wrote when he was a young man, it's called The Bachman Books, and he wrote it under a pseudonym, I forget the first name, I think it was Richard Bachman. And it was a bunch of short stories, some of them are quite, quite famous, but one of them's called Rage, and it's about a kid that takes his high school class hostage. And in the, in the situation, in the story, the short story, the kid gets on the phone and negotiates with the principal, and he negotiates with the chief of police, and he makes the adults look like idiots. Absolute idiots. He's in complete control of the situation. Kids have really taken to this book. They did at least years ago. We've had at least five school situations going back some years now where kids had read that book repeatedly and then went in and did it. And that's what happened in South Dakota. Uh, you know, Ryan uh, went in there and um, I just lost his last name. He went into the school and tried to replicate the scenario and he was going to go out in a blaze of glory and have the police kill him. Well, he gets on the phone. Uh, the negotiator is uh, Chris Grant from the police department out there. And he's calm, controlled, and excellent in what he's doing. Ryan tries to do exactly what the character in the book did. He belittles the negotiator, insults his wife in pretty graphic ways. And the negotiator just lets it be water off a duck's back. Doesn't overreact to it. Keeps control of the situation. And eventually keeps a lid on things long enough where one of the students ends up overpowering him and the situation resolved without loss of life. People said, well, that wasn't negotiated out. I said, it wasn't? Didn't the negotiator keep him tied up for hours and hours until this opportunity arose? Sometimes a perpetrator falls asleep. Sometimes hostages escape. There's a lot of things that happen. But they bought time. He didn't overreact. He didn't get in an argument with this young fellow. So he maintained his composure and his self-control. <clears throat> in every situation that I've been involved in, that's a key element. And I think when you think about work scenarios that you're involved in, you're going to have a difficult client. You're going to have a difficult coworker. You're going to have a difficult supervisor. Everybody does. You know, so how do you handle that? How do you work that to your advantage, to engage with that person in a positive and meaningful way? These are the things you need to think about. 
and suppress that natural urge to lash out and get something off your chest that really isn't going to be helpful. You see it today in our political discourse with the crisis going on today in Washington. Both sides get in the name calling. You know, it's kind of hard to sit at the table the next day and come up with an equitable solution to a complex problem when you've just called somebody some names and made fun of them or belittled them. It's not a good recipe for success. All right, be genuine. Um, I went to a prison ride. This was kind of, I'd spent, uh, you've heard of Waco, and I'll talk about Waco a little bit later, but I'd come back from the famous Waco siege. By the way, did anybody see the TV show? Did you see my cameo at the end? Uh, there's a lot of buzz about Academy Award, but it all, it all came from me, but there was a lot of buzz. But anyway, it's, I had lunch with Mike Shannon today that played, played me in the TV show, so that was kind of interesting. So they bought my book as one of the two books for the six-part miniseries. That was a lot of fun being involved in that. The Lucasville prison, right after Waco, I came home from the Waco situation, and they sent me to a prison riot in Lucasville. It was a year that I didn't see my family a whole lot. And what happened, there were inmates that had rebelled and took over the facility. There were three groups of inmates. There was a black criminal gang called the Black Disciples. There were a black Muslim gang, and there was a bunch of skinheads. You know, nice folks, you know, used to working in a democratic fashion, uh, always open for calm, controlled dialogue. Well, they take over the facility, and they basically trash the place and start killing people they don't like, and it's a pretty bad situation. And I fly out there to help out, and it's been going on a few days by the time I get out there, and they're getting nowhere. And part of the problem is each of these separate groups was negotiating. Each one held a few hostages, and each one had its own agenda, and their agenda was primarily getting on the phone and yelling at the correctional authorities. They were getting nowhere. So I came up with the idea, we've, we've got to get them organized. We've got to help them to get organized enough to get what they want. So we said, listen, what you guys need to do, and we did this in a very genuine and sincere way, we're not really moving this forward, so what you really need to do is get your group together, decide what are the issues that are important to you, pick a spokesperson, and we'll set up a meeting. And eventually they went for that. And we set up a table, they're on one side of the fence, we're on the other. What was our number one mission? We're gonna listen to them. Instead of doing what they expected, which was the correctional authorities coming out and saying, you guys better did this, you better surrender, we're taking recontrol of this prison, you're gonna pay hell for all the murders and bad stuff you've done in there. No, said your only job is to listen. This is an expression of their frustration, their quite clearly pent up frustration. Uh, nobody likes being incarcerated. So we have to give them an opportunity to air their grievances and tell us what they want. Does this sound familiar? You think this might apply in your home? With family members? Yeah. So that's what we did. And we gave them a chance to sit and talk and get organized. And interestingly enough, that led to some more talks. And we said, OK, let's go pen to paper. Let's put down exactly what it is that you want. And it was amazing. The list came out, 25 points, 25 points from these three groups. And the prison official saw it and said, we can't fall prey to any of these demands. This is outrageous. And I said, read the demands. Look at the way they're written. The authorities will try to get more food at the snack bar. The authorities will try to improve the health care unit. We'll look into expanding the athletic equipment in the gym. You know, I said, this is no-brainer stuff. I said, they're not even asking for anything difficult. They don't want a plane to Cuba. You know, they want better sandwiches at the snack bar. You know, well, you can do this. And the authorities said, well, yeah, I guess we can. And it led to a surrender. No one else, there was one correctional guard killed as a vendetta, but basically everyone came out alive. And what happened was the authorities, by showing that they were genuine, generally interested in hearing what was important to these folks, what they wanted to accomplish, led an opportunity to have that in more specific detail, which gave us the tools to work with them to come to a solution. Nobody wants to seem defeated. We didn't even use the word surrender. When you surrender, we said, let's discuss the evacuation. We're going to evacuate the prison. Doesn't that sound better than saying, when are you going to surrender? Oh, we've got to talk how we're going to evacuate you from the facility. Oh, yeah, we can do that as long as we don't have to surrender. Whatever, all right? <laughs> so even the most incorrigible criminal 
wants to be treated with dignity and respect. Yes, please, next slide. Don't miss your opportunity, this is a big one. Oh, oh, you had gone back one when I wasn't looking? Okay, I don't want you changing my presentation, okay. Listening is really, really important. This is an interesting case that happened in Louisiana in 1996. I was called on the phone by the sheriff and the chief as this was going on. This guy's a police officer, was a police officer. One day on duty, he pulls a car over. There's a woman in the car. He's in uniform in his police car. He rapes her and then gives her his business card. Have a nice day. Now, Junior Sigmund Freud, what would that suggest to you? Does he know the consequences of what he's just done? Yeah. He knows that this is not going to be a career-enhancing move for him. So something else is going on. You think maybe he's not planning on living out the rest of that day. From the rape scene, he goes to the bank where his now estranged wife works. And there's, I think, three employees and a couple customers. He lines them up, says, I know you. I know you. I don't know you. Shoots and kills a young mother of two kids. Random murder. What we call this is he's working up to the end. You see this with a suicide, somebody will make a tentative scratch on their wrist with a knife, or they'll discharge the weapon in the air before they actually take the shot that takes their own life. He's engaging in a set of activities from which there is no turning back. So the prognosis at this point, he's in the bank with hostages, no clear demands, he's not asking for money, he's not asking for a getaway car. What is the prognosis for additional loss of life? Extraordinarily high. If you were a betting person, don't bet a penny against the fact that more people are going to die. But the police decide the best thing to do is get his best buddy, who I will call Billy Bob. That's not his real name, but it sounds funnier when you say it that way. And Billy Bob gets on the phone and he says to Chad, 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 come on out, Chad. We need to talk. Chad, come on out. This is pretty much the script for the next several hours. Chad doesn't want to come out. He wants to talk now. And the buddy keeps saying, no, we'll talk when you come out. Wrong approach. If he wants to talk now, let's talk to him. Let's get these feelings out. So the sheriff and the chief called me up and said, do you have any ideas? And I said, yeah, there's a female negotiator there from the FBI. She's outstanding. I think you should put her on the phone. Let her negotiate. And they say, well, wait a minute. We don't think he's real partial to women. He just raped one and killed another. And I said, you don't understand. When two cops, where's my cop friend? When two cops are out in the car at night, you know, they don't sit back and say, let's talk about our, our personal relationship issues. It just doesn't happen, you know? Are you having difficulties with your wife? How's your sexual performance? Any impotency issues or, you know, but you know, guys don't do that, all right? They just don't do that. But they will talk to a lady and share their feelings with a woman. So Gloria gets on there, and she says, you know, um, and, and at this time, he's no longer talking to the cops. It's his wife, who's one of the hostages, gets on the phone, and she says, he just wants to talk to somebody. I mean, he couldn't say it more clearly. And she said, well, I've been listening on the phone here, and I don't know if I can help him, but I'm a good listener. Well, he gets on the phone with her, and they spend two or three hours talking about his life problems, his relationship issues, his problems on the police force, and he's got tons of all of that stuff. He surrenders eventually based on that relationship that was created. Now, I would tell you, if you were in my business, you would realize the scenario that I've told you, it just doesn't get worse than that. Th that is a guarantee that more people are going to die. He's raped a woman. He's killed a woman. He's holding a romantic significant other for whom he has a troubled history with. It's all the signs of further tragedy, yet he comes out. And why? Because he gave him the opportunity to listen. And you can do that with clients that have problems and grievances. I mean, if it works here, it'll work in most places. Don't try to answer their problem. Don't try to fix their problem. You know, I'll give you a, a, an example from my own life. You know, I was traveling overseas once. I came home, I was really tired. Sit down in front of the TV set. I grabbed the remote control, which was working much better than this one. But. And, and I have, you know, 400 stations at my disposal. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. We're not stopping for the home shopping network we're going through until we see a car chase or some explosion or something exciting or a football game, whatever. 
So I'm doing this. I'm dead tired. I'm drinking a beer and doom, doom, doom. And I feel this presence behind me. Kind of like the Calvary knew when the Apaches were sneaking up. You couldn't really see them, but you kind of knew they were there. And it was my wife. And she says, now guys won't understand this, the women will. She says, I, of course, disregard it because I'm a guy. I have no idea what she means. Women know that means my beloved husband, I would like to converse with you. I, of course, disregard it completely, you know. And then she goes to the second level of communication where she goes, I still really would rather watch TV. And I don't see any reason to take both eyes off the TV. But I want to be seen as a loving, nurturing, engaging husband. So I go in man speak, which women do not understand. I go, huh? (laughs) Which as the guys know, yes, my beloved spouse, I'm here for you in your time of need. She doesn't seem to understand that. And then she goes for the double Megillah when she says, I can't believe he did it. Now I know my TV watching is going to be severely limited because now this is something I have to respond to with more than a classic purposeful male grunt. So I said, what, you know? She said, well, my boss made me work late against the third Friday in a row and goes on and on and on, floodgate. My wife's very lucky. She's married to a brilliant man. (laughs) I listen to this problem. I break it down in my mind. And I come up with a pretty amazing solution, I think, even to this day. I say, listen, you tell your boss you're not going to work late on Fridays anymore. Could you get me a beer, hon? Really good show coming up here. Identify a problem, solve the problem, move on to the next problem. That's what we do in law enforcement. Somehow this didn't seem to satisfy her. She gets on the phone, talks to her friend for three hours, and her friend says, oh, it must have made you feel so bad. I had a boss like that once. Now, I'm joking about myself, but isn't that what this is about? She wasn't looking for an answer. Most of the people you deal with aren't looking for you to solve their problem, answer their question, resolve the dilemma. They want you to listen and understand. All right? Stephen Covey, the business guru, first seek to understand, then to be understood. It's a key element. Anyway, Todd surrendered. Uh, Chad, excuse me, Chad surrendered. And uh, later tried to bust it. I want to see your hands up in the air the whole time. Is, is this the next one? Oh, OK. Oh, you wanted to be. Well, I'm not going to. OK, that's fine. All right. Effectively uh, respond. This is an interesting case. It was 4th of July with my family on the Washington Mall, ready to watch the fireworks. And I get a call on my cell phone, you know, back when the cell phones weighed about 17 pounds. And it was one of my negotiators. He said, I'm going to Charleston Harbor. There's a guy on the USS Yorktown, which is a decommissioned aircraft carrier that's now a museum. And he has a high-powered rifle, and he's fired some shots. And this seems to be bothering people in the community a little bit. So, having had several beers already, potato salad, baked beans, and et cetera, the whole nine yards for 4th of July, I have a, a moment of absolute brilliance. And I say, listen, 4th of July, highly symbolic naval vessel. I'm going to guess we're dealing with a veteran. And he's probably got a lot of problems. So take your time, listen to him thoughtfully, call me back when you need more great advice. <laughs> Honey, get me another beer. And off we go. Hour later, my cell phone goes off again. Phone number from South Carolina. I pick up the phone. I mean, I call the number on my, it wasn't my cell phone. I lied to you. It was my beeper. That's when we had beepers. That's how old it is. So I called the number on the beeper. And I said, oh, is Mike Duke That's the name of my negotiator. And the guy said, no. I said, well, is this the command post? No, it's not. Um, is this the negotiation room? No, it's not. And he says, who'd you say you were again? I said, well, I'm Gary Nestor. I'm the chief hostage negotiator from the FBI in Washington. And he says, I guess I'm in more trouble than I thought, which is what we call a clue in my business. I said, say, you wouldn't be the guy with the gun, are you? Yes, I am. Somehow, unbeknownst to my guys, the souvenir shop down here had a phone that could be answered up there, where Jim was with his trusty high-powered rifle. 
and Jim was a little quicker on phone answering than they were. So I'm 400 miles away talking to Jim, and sure enough, Yvette had uh, uh, been, you know, drug dependency problems, alcohol problems, Vietnam veteran, uh, a really screwed up life, and had so many problems, it was just really sad. And I knew I shouldn't be talking to him from 400 miles away, but it's a little hard to extract yourself from a situation like that. So I talked to him for a while, and he was very concerned about people coming up to take over the ship, and I finally was able to get him transferred to the local negotiators, and they invested the time and effort to get Jim to put his gun down. It took him quite a long time. I think it was over 10 hours. Um, is it worth it to invest the time in somebody that served our country? I think so. You know, why do we need to rush up there and shoot him or do something like that. Take our time and get him help. That's what he needs. That's what he really needed. So it responded effectively. You know, when I was talking to Jim and later the negotiators, didn't just say, put your gun down, Jim. You got to come out of this. This is not going to accomplish anything. You just say, well, can you tell me what, what happened at the VA? I want to know. I want to know what issues you faced that were not handled well from your point of view. Let him talk about it. Let him, let him share with somebody. Because you know, a lot of these people that are in these situations, no one's ever given them a chance before to really get it off their chest. Or they feel as though no one's really listened or understood them. And I'll talk a little bit more about how you do that. The way you respond to someone, uh, I'll say it right now, you, you kind of paraphrase. You know, you would say something like, well, Jim, it sounds like you've been in and out of the VA system for many years. And despite the many efforts you've undertaken to get the benefits and the help that you need, that time and time again, someone has not followed through. They canceled the appointment. They couldn't get to see you for months. And you just feel like nobody cares about you. Now, if I say that after listening to him, and if it's correct, I've really forwarded the relationship. Because I'm telling him, I'm not saying, I understand, Jim, I understand. I'm demonstrating it. I'm showing him, I'm proving I understand because I'm telling him in my words what he's told me in his words. There is no more powerful tool in human communication than that. And you can do it with a customer, a vendor, you're trying to get a new client, and you say, so let me understand, these are the problems you're having in your office space. These are the issues that come up time and time again. And despite your efforts to remedy that in your current space, it still comes up again and again and you really need a longer-term solution. Do I, is that correct? And it'll either be correct, and the person says, yes, you understand, or they'll say, no, that's really not the issue. It's more of a budgetary issue for us. Well, then you've learned something about that, too. That's helpful as well. Okay, please, thank you. Now, David Koresh, and some of you are more aware of this than others, you know, that's the, probably the, the darkest day, or darkest event in my career, and the issue that the FBI uh, probably mishandled in so many ways, although Dave Koresh shown there um, was not nearly as nice a person as Taylor Kitsch, who played him in the TV show, was. Um, some of you remember Taylor from Friday Night Lights. I never saw that show, but he's apparently quite popular with the young ladies, and he's a really nice young fella, and he played such a nice role that I think I would have joined the cult, too. But anyway. So what happened? So the FBI gets called out. There's another federal agency, ATF, that has undertaken this raid. It's resulted in a terrible shootout. There's uh, uh, you know, several dead, eight, four dead ATF agents, 17 wounded, the bloodiest day in law enforcement history in the United States at the time. And there's Davidians killed, six or seven of them killed in this horrendous gunfight, the largest battle on US soil since the Civil War. So they were able to get a ceasefire. Eventually, the FBI comes out. And we're going to take over from ATF because murdering federal agents then becomes an FBI investigation. I'm leading the negotiation process. What did we want to do? What was our challenge with David Koresh? No hostages being held. No one held against their will. No demands made except go away, leave us alone, which in essence was the one thing we couldn't do. So how do you create a relationship with trust? Well, you listen and, and let them talk about their frustration at what happened and their side of the story. And you don't challenge or correct, you just listen. You don't agree or you don't disagree. Help me understand how you see what happened. I want to know. And it shows that you're genuine, 
and uh, you're, you're truly understanding how they feel about a very tense situation. All right? Now, as some of you also know, there was a big conflict in the FBI where my team got a lot of people out. The other part of the FBI wanted to take a more forceful approach to kind of push them out. And those sent very inconsistent uh, signals. But you know, we got a lot of people out, including a lot of children. And uh, I feel good about that, but I don't like the way it ended. Um, contrary to what the TV show kind of implicated, they started the fire. It's been proven. Now, the FBI did insert tear gas, and that's what triggered them starting the fire, but they actually started it. Tragic, tragic ending. Could have been handled a lot better, and we learned a lot from it. After Waco, the head of the tactical team was forced to resign, retire. The head of the op whole operation was forced to retire, and I got a promotion. So the FBI realized that uh, the negotiation team had it right. We got 35 people out, uh, including 17 children. And if we had kept doing the things that my team wanted to do, I think we would have gotten everybody out. Please, thank you. It's not really fair. You can't see this. Well, you can see them right there. You got it. Okay. Respect. Every human being wants it. I mentioned that in the Lucasville prison situation. You know, and it's easy, particularly in a law enforcement context, where we can kind of paint a picture of somebody that's not exactly a model citizen and, and maybe not treat them as well as they feel they want to be treated. But you'll find that really successful police officers on the street engaging with citizenry are very respectful of people they deal with. That's the secret to their success. They don't have to just resolve conflict, they avoid it by the way they engage with citizenry. So remain polite and attentive. Whatever the person is saying and feeling, you know, project that in your response. Now the Freeman siege happened three years after Waco and it was some right-wing anti-government folks that had uh, planned to kidnap a federal judge. They had uh, committed armed robbery. They had millions of dollars worth of bogus uh, liens that they had applied. And the local authorities had a two-man police department out there, basically Andy and Barney. And so the FBI went out there to resolve it. Unlike Waco with ATF, we decided we we're going to arrest the number one and two-man away from the ranches. There was uh, Jordan, Montana, where this occurred, was characterized by National Geographic as the most remote city in the continental United States. I mean, it's nothing but Montana wilderness. And they lived on these ranches that were connected. So we, um, we met with them finally. They wouldn't meet with us for quite a long time. And we were respectful. Their ideas about not being uh, subject to US law, not being part of the United States, were complete idiocy. But instead of making fun of them, instead of belittling them, we encouraged them to tell us about it. We encouraged them to come and have their day in court and to uh, tell their side of the story and to prove the, uh, the uh, legal validity of what they were contending. So that respect gets you a lot. And finally, it took 83 days, but we were able to create a relationship. I met several times with the, the guy that became the new leader, Edwin Clark, still friends with him on Facebook. And, uh, and we had him surrender. I'm the good looking guy right down here. And they were coming out to surrender. All right, next one, please. Sincerity. You know, this was an interesting case, you know, near the latter part of my career. The island of Vieques is a, 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 a really, it was a really strategic place for the United States Navy. It was an island off of Puerto Rico, and the Navy used it to bomb, to land Marines, to prepare for uh, the, the warfare uh, uh, mission that they had. And it was one of the few places in the world they could do all those things, you know, have Marines land on the beach the same time planes are bombing and so forth and so on. Well, it became a very political, hard, uh, hard situation in, in Puerto Rico where the Puerto Rican people wanted the land back. They didn't want the Navy there anymore. And uh, the FBI was ordered uh, to remove protesters who had occupied the island. And we initially told the Attorney General, thanks, but we really, <laughs> that's not what we do. And Janet Reno was the Attorney General, and she said, no, no, it is what you do. You're going to remove these people. There were five camps on this pretty large island. Our plan was to go in on the cover of night, and all these guys in the ninja outfits and the rubber boats, and come in and jump these guys before they knew we were on top of them. But we flew a helicopter around the night before, and what we saw was news cameras at all the camps. We said, this could be a problem. 
So we came up with plan B, and my plan B was, instead of going up in these boats with all this ninja gear, why don't we put on a golf polo shirt and a pair of khakis and walk up to them and talk to them and try to convince them to leave? Huh? You know, we can do that? Yeah. So I picked Puerto Rican FBI negotiators, or otherwise Spanish speakers, who were respectful and said nice things about what they were their cause. Actually, some of them actually supported what they were doing. And they went out there, and they got them all to surrender without any resistance whatsoever. And it just shows that you just don't always have to do things the hard way. You know, by being respectful and genuine and sincere, tell me about, you know, how you feel about this. I want to know. Next one, please. Honesty. Uh, there's a situation where this guy was, um, uh, it would belong to this uh, religious sect, uh, uh, obscure Mormon religious sect, and his wife had just delivered their eighth child, and she had a tubal ligation, and he wanted her to have more kids. And she weighed about 80 pounds. She said, you know, I think, uh, I think this is enough. Um, so she got her tubal ligation. He went in the hospital to kill the doctor. He was a very volatile guy, Richard Worthington. So he ended up taking over the host, uh, and held hostage a neonatal unit, newborn babies, moms. It was a terrible situation. Killed a nurse who tried to escape early on, and we had to go out there. This is a case where a guy really didn't know how to get out of what he got into. He was acting on pure rage and emotion. And eventually, he started asking us questions, well, if I surrender, what will happen to me? Well. The reason I call this honesty is because you couldn't really say, oh, it's really no big problem. It's only one nurse you killed, and we'll work it out. It's no big deal. We always try to minimize things they've done. This was a little difficult. You know, so you had to be honest. You had to say, so we had to say stuff like, listen, I'm not a judge, and I'm not a jury. You know, you're clearly going to have to face some uh, investigation of what happened here, and there could be some consequences, but I can't predict what that will be. But I know what I can do is I can tell the judge that you cooperated and that you did the right thing once we started talking and no one else was hurt. And I think that's an important thing. And he eventually surrendered after we let him see his wife at the end of a long hallway. Likeability, this was a case I worked in Sperryville, Virginia. Go as quick as I can, Mark. Uh, uh, um, um, a guy held his common law wife and child hostage. I negotiated with him for 10 hours uh, downstairs in a farmhouse they had broken into. He had kidnapped her from Connecticut and uh, driven her down to, to Sperryville, Virginia, about an hour and a half west of D.C., where I lived at the time. And there, this is a picture of Charlie Leaf when he was building a cabin, uh, kind of putting a gun to his head, which was sort of crazy stuff. Anyway, Charlie um, was a rageful, angry guy, and after talking with him for several hours, he worked himself up to a frenzy and was ready to kill her and the child. And I was able to convince them that rather than do that, to walk to a helicopter out in the field, because you know all FBI agents have our own helicopters. Mine was parked out there. And um, that's what they did. And when he did, an FBI marksman shot and killed him, something we don't like to do. But it was either that or the woman and child were probably going to be killed. A tough, tough situation. Again, it's the first chapter of my book. I talk about it in more detail. It's kind of a, a unique case, because it's the only case we know where a negotiator me recommended that kind of ending. Uh, anyway, next please. Trustworthiness. This happened in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1982. I flew down for this. A guy was a drug runner. He had an argument with his uh, sister and her two young kids who he was using as a cover to run his drugs up from Miami to New York. They had an argument in the middle of the night on the train. Shots were fired. He kills his sister and, he and he's uh, barricaded in this train situation. Uh, 72 hours, the longest situation outside of a prison in the United States history at the time. And we went down and negotiated. It was bitter cold. This old uh, covered area used to come out much further, and we stayed outside and communicated with him in a train car. And what he basically was, he was untrusting. He didn't believe that we would not kill him when he came out. He was from Colombia, in Colombia, South America. The police might have treated him a little bit differently upon surrender. So. He wanted to talk to a lawyer that had represented him in a case up here in New York. And we said, we will bring him here. And we found him. We flew him down on an FBI plane. And we let them talk briefly. And he surrendered. We followed through. We demonstrated our trustworthiness instead of just expecting him to do it. 
responsiveness. I flew down in 1996, I flew to Peru for the takeover of the Japanese ambassador's residence. And this was a weird case where uh, MRTA terrorists were holding diplomats and dignitaries, including the mother and sister of President Fujimori of, uh, of Peru, and threatening to kill them. And uh, Fujimori's uh, strategy was, don't talk to him. Maybe the problem will go away. And they kept putting up signs, we want to talk. They had many hostages they could have killed to force discussions. And we finally prevailed on him to open up a dialogue. And I just put this up to show you have to be responsive. You have to engage. Uh, we have a thing we call law enforcement verbal containment. You know, uh, talk as soon as you can. Start a dialogue as soon as you can to lower that emotional content that I talked about and to begin a dialogue that hopefully will lead to a solution. This is what we do in negotiations. The goal at the top of that stairway is cooperation, which is what we want in every walk of life. Human beings want, need, require cooperation. We don't just stop there, start there. We have to work our way there. And I like to teach it from the top to the bottom. From cooperation, to get to cooperation, we have to exert influence. Somebody values our opinion, uh, wants to hear what we, ideas we have, is open to working with us and hearing our suggestions. We get that through this old French stuff called rapport. That's good stuff, that rapport. You want a whole bunch of that. Uh, so get that rapport going. Having any common interests, things that you like, you know, think something about this person that you can identify. Charlie Leaf, the guy that we brought to the helicopter, I found out I had an old motorhome at the time that I used to take my family camping in. And he was a woodsman from Connecticut and up there. And I would say, Charlie, just to get his mind off of the crisis at hand, I want to take my family camping in New England this summer. Do you have any suggestions? Well, what kind of places do you like? So somebody walked in and said, you know, here we are, you know, dozens and dozens of cops and equipment and life and death situation. Gary's talking about camping. I mean, what the hell's going on? But it was a good thing because we were building rapport. And that's the only reason he walked out of that house is because he trusted me. I took advantage of that trust, and I lied to him, which is not a, a normal skill set for us, but I had to in that situation. But you get the report through demonstrating empathy, and you use that from active listening skills. I don't know if you've heard about those. Uh, listening is not a passive endeavor. It's active. So when a person says something, you ask an open-ended question for more information. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, it sounds like you really had a good time with that trip to Greece. You know, what, what was it that you liked about it so much? People like talking about their experiences and things that they've done and things that they're interested in. Nurture that. And not in a phony or false way, but in a really authentic way. I tell a story, I was in Memphis uh, a couple of years ago and I'm sitting uh, at the bar having my steak and, and Jack Daniels because I'm traveling by myself. I'm not gonna do room service or sit in my, at a hotel, uh, restaurant by myself. So this guy walks up to me, he's got these surgical scrubs on, very busy man, very busy man. You know, he's, ah, give me a martini, give me a martini, you know. And so he's my target de jour. So I said, hi, excuse me, sir, I couldn't help notice you have surgical scrubs on. Did you just come from emergency room? No, 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 well, yes, I mean, I, well, I said, well, are you a surgeon? He said, no, no, I'm a medical device salesman. I said, oh, you're a medical device salesman? He said, yeah, yeah. So well, what kind of devices? Well, artificial joints, knees, hips, ankles. So I turned my seat towards us. You, you sell that stuff? That's fascinating. How long have you been doing that? And I said, but, but why do you have the scrubs on? He said, well, I go in the emergency room, and I show the doctors how to do it. Well, you know where we place doctors in society? I've just elevated him above doctors. So you teach doctors. Yes, yes, I do. Well, after an hour, I knew Jim. I knew his wife's name, his kid's name. I knew where he went to college, where he lived, what kind of car he drove. I knew everything about Jim. He didn't know shit about me. <laughs> but I didn't give him a chance. You know, I just kept asking him questions. Tell me more about that. That's so interesting. And you really learn about people. And about at the end of the night, I said, okay, I, I've got to give a speech tomorrow, Jim. It, this has been fascinating. I, I, I learned so much. Thank you so much for spending the time telling me about all that. Oh, yeah, yeah no, no problem. He said, uh, what was your name again? <laughs> uh, my name's Gary Nessner. Oh, uh, what do you do? I, I retired. I was the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. Hey, have a good night. And I walked away. <laughs> and you could see him go like... And I know he was saying to himself, maybe I could have learned a thing or two if I'd listened or heard a good story, you know? But do that. 
make it a target du jour and don't do it in a phony or insincere way. If you meet somebody at social engagement, it doesn't have to be work-related, just say, you know, I don't know this person very well, or maybe it's somebody new. I want to learn everything I can about them and, and really find out what makes them tick. And you might be surprised how often you come away from that saying, this is a really interesting person. I'd like to hang out with them again or have a drink or have them over the house, whatever it might be. Next one, please. And this is the last one, and I'll just, when, in, when examining any kind of engagement, you know, with others, it's often the case that, you know, how you say something is so important. I used to interview uh, hostage takers when they would come out. Why did you surrender? What did I say? You know, trying to learn stuff. And the answer was always the same, always the same. I don't remember what you said, but I like the way you said it. Think about that. Genuineness, sincerity, honesty, likability. You know, how do we enhance those aspects of our personality you know, to make us better people, number one, but also to make us more uh, successful in not only work, but life? You know, become a good listener. Become somebody that cares about other people and do it genuinely. And it's tough. You know, we have active lives. When my kids were little and I'm traveling around the world doing this stuff, you know, it's the old cats in the cradle. You know, hey, Dad, you got time for this? Yeah, well, we'll do that soon, you know, when I get back from Beirut. You know, but I mean, it's... You've got to take the time right then and drop what you're doing and look at those people and, and you know, focus. And if it's your kids, you've got to be careful because they'll grow up to be a seal if you don't do it the right way. <laughs> All right. Be empathic. Show respect and compassion. You know, receiving bad news. You know, I used to work in a consulting company after I left the FBI, and sometimes it was workplace-related where there'd be a massive layoff of a factory. And you'd be amazed how many companies do it the wrong way. Bring everybody in the auditorium, bring in police officers. You're all fired. You know, you know, don't go back to your locker. We'll send your stuff home. No empathy, no nothing. And there's other companies that say, you know, we're going to sit down with counselors. We're going to get you job training. We're going to keep your benefits going. We're going to spell out how we're going to continue to support you during. I'm sorry, it's a downturn. Our company just, they're closing this plant. But here's what we're going to do in the transition. They may not like the news, but they're going to like the empathic way you told them about it and the representations you made about how you're going to try to assist them. So it's not just what happens to us in life, it's how it happens. So think about that. Never underestimate the power of a calm, soothing voice to resolve conflict, build trust, and create a positive relationship. You know, it's a powerful tool. And some of us don't have natural calm voices or demeanors work on it. We can all improve and do better. And there's some situations where I'm, I'm probably a lot less effective than I am in other situations. You know, but if you can really try to put yourself in the other person's shoes, learn about the problems, issues, and concerns they have, because here's what I'm going to tell you. If you want to be successful in business, everything you do is about relationship. It's not because your company's got a great reputation. It's not because your product may or may not be superior. It's because you've created a relationship of trust with that client. That's what does it. That's going to lead you to success. You'll get the business, and once you've got it, you'll keep it. Because that person knows if there's a problem, which inevitably there will be, you're going to resolve it. And they can trust you to follow through and do what you represent. So. That's kind of my quick pitch, a little longer than I'm, I should have, I suppose. I'll be in trouble. They'll pull the hook out on me. But, but um, now is Q&A time. And I know everybody's staring. I'll see a lot of people staring at the wine, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm happy to answer any questions that you have and dispute anything you want disputed or whatever. No? Oh, I'm sorry. God, snake, I'd have been bit. I have two mics. Well, this, the other one's recording this for the podcast. Yes, John. Yeah, you're, you're dealing a lot of times with, uh, I guess, clients that you're not really uh, you know, working with too often. You, know, you don't have a, a good rapport with them, I suppose. How do you develop that, uh, that relationship with them for you very quickly? Um, you're talking about a new client? or I'm talking about for, for you, you know, you're working with people who, you know, certainly with Charlie as, a, as a, yeah. an extreme example of uh, 
had a different recommendation for him. How do you how do you deal with those types of personalities when maybe you're not on the same exact level? How do you make that connection? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. How do you connect with somebody that you really have some pretty significant differences with? I mean, when I spoke to David Kresh initially, I mean, you, this was an angry guy. He was wounded. Some of his people had been killed. He was mad at the U.S. government. And yet we got along pretty well because I had to show that, okay, I'm somebody worthy of your respect because I, I want to hear your point of view. You know, I didn't want to uh, dictate things to him or come across as authoritative or demanding. I wanted to be respectful. And you know, say things like, I know you guys have gone through a terrible situation today. I, I can only imagine what's going on inside with people's feelings and so forth. I, I think you have to earn the right to get that relationship. Then you do it by the responses you make, the questions you ask, the way you present yourself. And maybe not specific enough for you, but that's kind of the formula that's worked for me. It doesn't work at home for me, but it works. <laughs> I, yes? Um, I'm just sort of curious if you ever I guess it's sort of twisted, like, humor. You know, when is that in a, in a appropriate situation? Or, like, when are you using that to build a relationship? Yeah. I, 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 like, think I have a good sense of humor. I'm kind of known for that in my instruction. But it doesn't really come into play during a, a crisis. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the last thing you want in the world is for somebody to think you don't take it seriously. I mean, there have been a few times. Uh, even David Koresh, one night he said, uh, what are you guys eating at night? And the negotiator said, well, we go to Whataburger, it's the only place open. And he said, ugh, Whataburger, terrible meat. He said, if it does turn out I'm the son of God, the world's gonna find out about the meat in the Whataburger. Well, it was a little bit of joke of sorts, you know, and he would clown around a little bit, but you had to be very careful with that, and, because these are serious matters. Now, that will be the case less so in a business context, I, I should think, you know, there's certainly times to joke, but, but you know, I, I think it's like anything else, you can take it to excess. You know, because your like natural demeanor is like cracking jokes, and it's like hard to yeah. like just being totally. And sometimes you know, you know as well as you, you connect with somebody, and you say, "This person's of the same kind of uh, personality," you know. And I've now dealt with this client for a while, and you know, we have this joking relationship, and that's okay. But to start out that way, to be overly familiar, it can actually be a turnoff. Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, you should have gone to you first. You did all the hard work. Totally fine. Um, talking about self-control, a lot of times when you're negotiating with someone, you're in front of them, and there are a lot of visible tells for your emotions. So how do you start to identify those things that you may not realize, or how do you kind of approach all of the things that are pretty innate to an individual? Yeah, I mean, you, you begin to set, set up, um, not to compare them, but she's asking about the, the various facial gestures and tells and how you perceive someone. You don't have a baseline to go on because you haven't seen them in a, in a non-crisis event, in my case. Fortunately for me as a negotiator, most of our negotiations were over a telephone. And we always have the saying that no negotiator has ever been killed on the telephone, so it's why I got in the negotiation instead of SWAT. But... Um, yeah, but no, you, you just kind of pick up on, on a pattern of how, I guess some people study this, they study body language and eye movement. I, I never have done it in a formal way. I just kind of got pretty good at reading people, I think. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes? How did you train, what was the training process for new negotiators? Yeah, we run them through a, an extensive two-week course. At, they're pre-selected first for certain attributes and inclinations and background. But then they go through a two-week course that's just case studies, role-playing, you know, abnormal psychology, you know, all process procedures, all kinds of stuff. And then they usually kind of understudy for a while before they get on the phone. Yeah, it's pretty much standard. Most police departments do it, do it that way as well. Yeah, it, it's really, and it's totally a volunteer program. Nobody's forced to be the negotiator. And, uh, you know, it was, it was said a brand new discipline when I got into it in the FBI. And it was described to me, and I just said, I just want to do this. This sounds really intriguing to me to use communication skills to save somebody's life or to de escalate a conflict. You know, and you have to be tough, though, because if you work enough, these people get killed and you have to bounce back from that. But there's no better feeling than when people come out alive that probably wouldn't have otherwise. The funny thing about negotiations, though, 
in, law, in the law enforcement context, you'll, you'll appreciate this. When, uh, when, a, when a perpetrator, or as they say here in the city, poipetrator, when a, when a poipetrator surrenders, you know, everybody says, well, that must not have been so hard. You know, he didn't really want to do it anyway. He didn't want to hurt anybody. He didn't want to hurt himself. Well, try doing it. You know, <laughs> it, it can be a lot more difficult than you realize. But the more you get comfortable with the fact that you're not going to say anything that's going to cause this person to harm himself or somebody else, that's a solely their decision. You get comfortable with being yourself and natural. You know, to be a good negotiator, imagine your best friend from childhood who lives in California, calls you up one night in a crisis, getting a divorce, child died, you know, whatever, or got cancer. You know, you're going to say like, well, you know, it's really not a convenient time to talk. Can we do this tomorrow or something? No, you're, you're, you're going to take your phone and go to a quiet room and you're going to be there for them for as long as it takes. And what they're looking for in you and what you provide, and that's the reason they called you, is what you want to try to provide for somebody that maybe you don't have that special relationship for, but has just as great a need and, and is in just as much a crisis. So if you put yourself in that frame of reference, that comes through. People read that. They read insincerity. You know, you go to buy a car, you know, and the salesman comes, hey, Gary, good to see you in here. I know exactly what I need, you need today, right? No, you don't. No, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You don't know why I'm here. Where's another salesman, you know? I want the guy that's like Columbo, you know, hey, you know, you've got a lot of cars, you know, take a look at them. If you have any questions, I'm over here. That's my guy, you know? I'm, when I buy the car, I'm going to see Columbo, you know? Anything else? Yes? Well, a couple of them didn't go the way I wanted to. I mean, certainly the Sperryville one. I, 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 was, um, I said, mentioned it in my book. When the FBI marksman killed Charlie, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm walking back to the house where I'd left my jacket afterwards, and my partner at the time came up to me and says, are you okay? And I said, I'm just so angry. And he said, why? I said, I'm just angry at Charlie that he made us do that. Why couldn't he have been reasonable, you know? I developed a, a little rapport with him, and I didn't want to have to kill him, but I felt it was the only way I could save her and the child. So it was a really, I have to say, a tough call, you know, and it could have ended tragically. Um, when he came out of the house, the little boy was tied by a bathrobe strap to Charlie's back. His, the, the, the boy's front of his head was right behind Charlie's back of his head, and the wife, common-law wife, was right in front of him, and they're walking towards the helicopter like this. And when they got close, the helicopter went up, a flashbang grenade was thrown, and Charlie went down on a knee. And when he did, he lifted his torso up to compensate, and there was a separation between him and the little boy, and that's when an FBI marksman took his life. But, you know, you, you get no pleasure out of that. I mean, it, it's, you know, could, could I have done a better job convincing him to put his gun down? You know, you always second-guess yourself. That's, that's part of it. The worst thing cops face, I'll tell you, are suicides. Um, and it's the most common thing police officers face. Because if this big old bad bank robber kills a hostage, we all know who to blame. You know, slimy bank robber, terrible human being. But when some kid is having a bad week and is on an overpass ready to jump because they didn't get a date to the prom or whatever it is, and you do your best to keep them from not doing it and they do it anyway, who do you blame? You don't blame the kid, you blame yourself. What could I have said? What should I have said? Why? Weren't my skills better to do that? And that's the thing for which the cops have the most trauma. I taught a class in Philadelphia once. There was a poor negotiator there, five suicides. Five people had killed suicides on him. And, his, and what do they do in cop land? His partners call him the Terminator. I mean, it's just the cruelest, you know, and he laughed. Uh, and I said, I don't think that's funny. You know, it's, uh, you know, you don't want to put that on somebody. It's not his responsibility. You know, somebody makes that decision, not the negotiator. But yeah, those losses are tough. And of course, Waco was, I had, I had issues with Waco for a long time. Uh, almost everybody out there did. And uh, it, it affected me personally very deeply because I was frustrated that what we were doing well wasn't continued. And I was replaced halfway through because I was an impediment to that more tactical activity. And I was, <laughs> guilty as charged. So three years later when we did Montana, now the director of the FBI said, Gary, your team tells us what to do, and that's what we're going to do. So that was great validation, vindication, as it were, but it doesn't take away the scars from what's happened before. Yeah. Yes? I have two questions, if that's okay. Two? <laughs> 
One is about, you mentioned an example of you had to lie even though you didn't want to. Yeah. How did you decide that you had to do that? And then um, the second question is related perhaps to the Puerto Rico example. When you're confronted with a culture or a place that you're not accustomed to, how do you quickly familiarize yourself with norms or, you know? Yeah. I'll do the cultural one first because that's a, a, a real interesting one. Um, you, you can't expect to know every culture that you might confront as a law enforcement negotiator or in business. You know, but what you should focus on is not the cultural nuance, but the, feel, the fact that feelings are universal. I don't care if you're African, Asian, Canadian, Norwegian, whatever. People feel love, hurt, pain, confusion. It's the same across the board. That's what you need to try to focus on. It's the only thing you can do effectively. I mean, if you try to say, well, you always got to talk to Norwegians this way, you know, well, you really better know what you're talking about or you're going to be in trouble. So we don't teach that. Now, uh, if I'm like when I was in Peru, we obviously brought in Peruvian uh, Spanish speaking negotiators uh, to, to sort of give us the cultural nuance of what we were hearing when we were recommending a strategy. So that's okay. And your other question was again, I'm sorry, I'm old. How you decide when you have to lie. Oh, well, it's only the really one case where I felt uh, that happened. And to me, it wasn't a long thought process. He, uh, the morning I'd been speaking with him overnight, I thought things were going well. And in the morning, he worked himself up into such an emotional frenzy, literally foaming at the mouth. And he said, I'm sitting in a chair, she's on her knees next to me. I've got the barrel of the gun in her head. I'm going to blow her effing brains out. And he had already called his son to sit on his lap. And I'm envisioning this. I'm in this old 100-year farmhouse. And I'm envisioning the tactical team is going to have to go up and try to intervene. And when I finally said, how can I keep you from doing that after failed attempts prior, uh, she said, can you get us out of here? And he said, yeah, we want to go to that helicopter. And as soon as I heard that, I knew I'd bought some time, or some time had been made available to me. But I also knew that if I went back, he would go ahead and kill her. I just, I had that sense of things. So it wasn't a, a psychological dilemma for me to lie to him. It was just their lives or his. That's the way I looked at it at the time. Yeah. And I've maintained friends with, with Cheryl, the wife, yeah. So it was, it was a pretty emotional time when she was finally released. I'd, I didn't get a chance to talk to her and I went back to the command post. And she's in there with her little boy. And it was a room like this full of all these cops. And I walk in, and she just runs across the room, puts her arms around me, and breaks out crying. I put my sunglasses on. I was really cool. You know? <laughs> I couldn't say anything for like 20 minutes. You know, you know so it's tough. It's emotional. It, it can be. What else we got? Anything? One more question? Um, going back to Waco, you brought up a good example of where you attempted to with the FBI as well as with the, the group. So how did, did you approach that differently? Because okay. there's varying levels of information. How do you gauge that? Yeah, I mean, it really, I, I really felt sometimes that dealing with my bosses was harder than dealing with David Koresh. Um, and, and what happened is a classic thing. You see it in the military. You see it in law enforcement. And you see it di diplomatically now. We go with gut emotion. Our bosses were frustrated. It was 50-something days in the Waco. It was costing a million dollars a day, big money in 1993 terms. And they just felt pressure. The FBI's made to look powerless. You know, we've always resolved these things swiftly before. Why can't we do this? And you put self-imposed pressure on yourselves to say and do things that are stupid and counterproductive. Um, so, you know, I won quite a few battles in convincing them to stop doing certain things like playing loud music and other stupid shit, um, but other battles I lost. Uh, so it became pretty frustrating, you know, it became frustrating. So, but fortunately after Waco, uh, a very dark day for the FBI, I, I, I got tasked with training every leader in the FBI, the lessons learned, so hopefully they'll be better in the future. So that was my last question. Um, I'll be hanging around here for a few minutes. If anybody has a, a, a private question, you know, like how do I stay so young looking? And um, it's it's been a I hope I hope it's been beneficial for you. I don't expect to, to change your lives or this to have been an epiphany, but I hope you'll pick up a few little points from 
the examples I gave you, it, it, just think for a moment if this will work in a really tense crisis, life and death. Won't it work in a maybe a less you know, death-defying scenario? I think it will. And it's a skill that you can really practice. You know, my, you know, the Supreme Court judge once said, you know, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Likeability is like that. It's hard to define what makes somebody likable, but you know it when you see it. Try to be that likable person. It creates better harmony in your own workplace. It creates a better relationship with your clients. It helps diffuse conflicts you have with outside vendors or whoever it might be. And it plays a mighty important role at home as well. So don't forget that, uh, that uh, important scenario there. And with your kids, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. I don't know how many of you have kids in here, but someday they'll ruin your life. No, no. It's just, <laughs> I just had six grandchildren with me for three days. And, you know, I, I had to go to the hospital for mental health work. So, All right. Thank you all very much.